Um, we've been in uh, a new series. Uh, we've been taking a break from Romans. And, and really, uh, this series has kind of been birthed out of a desire on, uh, on my part and in, in, in the conversations that I'm having with other leaders of other churches as well as with the staff of how do we think about church um, as we begin legitimately to look toward um, a future after COVID. And, and the church has been shaken to the core um, by the last couple years, especially in America. Um, and we've been kind of shaken to the core as a country with, with COVID. It just uniquely, I think, the, the um, U.S. And, and all of its um, belief in its own greatness uh, has been tested uh, in ways that, uh, that none of us ever thought we would see in our lifetime. I mean, it's not like we had, you know, things in our bylaws that said, and when a pandemic comes, do this as a church. Uh, and so there's so many things that happen that, you know, looking back, you're like, man, would we do that again? Or how would we deal with this if this was to occur again? But the biggest question is, is why have so many walked away from the faith? Why have so many chosen after two years out of church to say, you know what, I actually prefer life without church. Um, many people that have walked away from the church are not necessarily saying that I have walked away from Jesus. And that's a problematic idea with, in itself for Jesus established the church as the primary means by which he would make his presence known on earth as, as God's people empowered by the Spirit lift him up and are witnesses to him. But there's something about what we were offering as churches to the people that created some kind of disconnect. And I believe that a huge part of that disconnect was, it was, it was some fundamental misunderstandings of the gospel, a oversimplification of the gospel, an overemphasis um, on the individual within in the pew rather than the collective call as a community of faith, as a family of God, that, we're, that Jesus is the head and we are a body gifted uniquely, each one of us to contribute to the kingdom of God. But that desire, that easy beliefism, um, as well as the natural tendency toward legalism, uh, church being turned into a place where you're told what to do to have a great life um, is, is really problematic. But one of the biggest issues is the eradication of paradox, which is kind of at the center of the Christian faith. And, and our inability to understand paradox and what that creates for us, if we don't understand it, is it creates a sense of contradiction or these things aren't adding up, or they can't possibly work in harmony together. And so what you end up is, is you end up with error because of an overemphasis on one truth at the, at the removal of another. Um, and so we've been considering some of these paradoxes that I think, are, um, I think will help us reestablish a foundation that, that in many ways was, I found, in some of these things as I've been studying and writing, uh, is the, a foundation that was lacking in myself. Um, uh, things that I was not prepared for because I forgot in, in an age in which we have lived relatively easy lives. Um, and don't get me wrong, I think life is often impossible. Um, and, and it has not been without difficulty for me. But what I mean by that is we haven't, we haven't lived in an age like our great-grandparents whose, you know, the average lifespan over 100 years ago was, you know, 48 was getting old. It's the age I am now. You weren't going to probably live much longer. The average family lost a child uh, that was very likely. Uh, life expectancy short, the intensity of the work life, all of these things that we kind of take for granted is that life has become so focused on our individual enjoyment. We don't even think in terms of a job as just something necessary to be a provider for a family. That is no longer even on the, on the table for discussion. It is now about personal fulfillment. And personal fulfillment being the driving force in the church, it's not surprising when people aren't finding the fulfillment that they think they deserve from the church uh, that, 
they're going to become disenchanted, disenfranchised even. They're going to walk away. And so today, I want to talk with you about a paradox. I, I said last week, and I almost took you guys down a really bad path today. I just want you to know. I said last week that, you know, we live in a time in which we have lost our sense of history. In fact, I think that, that the increasing illiteracy in our nation is deeply troubling. And it's a real problem. The average American reads under a third grade level. They say that 70% of college graduates never read another book in their lives now. I mean, we live in an instantaneous information society. We want everything fast. Everything needs to come to us quickly. And if it, if it takes too much time, if it takes too much effort, it just, we are, tr we have, been so trained to rely on others to tell us what to do and what to think. I agree with Christopher Hedges. We have established the very real possibility of falling into the trapping of a very dangerous type of nation um, if we aren't careful because once we lose our ability to think analytically, there's no ability to discern uh, the lies that are coming at us from multiple directions. So last week, my, my statement was that we need to understand that there is a series of ideologies, philosophies, um, that, that really took shape in the 20th century that you and I are the products of. And those ideologies are real, and, and you may not even have an ability to define these ideologies, and you may not even be aware of how much you are shaped by them but it doesn't make them any less real. The analogy that I gave, uh, would give is this, is, is I can say, you know, of the wall behind you that that wall is not real. And I can say it again and again, and I can refuse to acknowledge its existence. It doesn't change the fact that it's there, but I can continue to deny it. And it won't ever change the fact that it's there. But if I deny it long enough, I will lose my understanding of what it is that's holding the build, building up. Over time, we may not be able to eradicate reality, but we can ignore it so long that we forget what it is. And when we forget what it is, then we don't have explanation or groundwork to explain why it is that we experience and feel things the way that we do. So the misstep that I was about to take you on was an adventure or a journey, um, more of a lecture into the various ideologies that I think are at play in uh, very intensely in our current age. But here's the problem. They're, they're endless. And, and if I was to take you down that path, it would be a lot of interesting information. And one thing I learned from my wife early on, and I tell pastors anytime we do conversations about preaching, I tell anyone that wants to preach, listen, if someone comes up to you and says, the sermon was interesting, you failed. <laughs> because that just means they don't know what they're supposed to do with that information. Um, and we need to remember that the purpose of gathering, the whole reason we gather as a church is the supreme motivation for us as a community of faith is to lift Jesus up. It's not for you to come and learn lots of stuff. It's for you to come and meet with the living Christ. And for you to be a part with me as a community of faith to say in a city like Portland, Jesus is alive and he's Lord and he loves you with an everlasting love. Now, I'm not saying that these things, we shouldn't know anything about them. We should, but there's no way, and most of us, I'm paid to study. So it would be unfair for me to A, make you feel bad for not you know, reading more existential philosophy. You're not, don't do that. You don't need to do that. You can watch like, you know, a five minute, I'll actually tell you, this is the one place where instantaneous information is helpful. Just do a Wikipedia search and just, I'll give you a list of ideologies. Get the basic definition and then ask yourself, how is that definition applying to how I live or think about reality? And what you'll be terrified by is how much these ideologies do shape our worldview. 
The real thing, I think, is what we need is a right understanding of the gospel to recognize that the gospel is not something that you arrive at in your own intellectual capacity, but it requires divine revelation. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. I believe that. But he also said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So for me to spend an entire message talking about anything other than lifting Jesus up is, I think, fundamentally problematic for a Sunday morning at church. So... Having said that, I will hint at, I will maybe speak out very quickly some ideologies that play against the gospel, but we've got to stay centered on that thing. And this isn't me being lazy as a preacher, I promise you. This is me taking many hours this morning praying and the Lord saying, what are you doing? Like, you're not a philosophy teacher, so put it away. You don't even have an education, so stop trying. And then I was like, you win, Jesus, you always do. <laughs> I want to just begin with this first slide. What we're going to consider today is what I would call knowledge in the wrong direction. The scripture actually has a lot to say about wisdom, about discernment, about knowledge. Um, and, and ideologies um, are many. Uh, and the way that we view the world that we live in, the way that we view one another, the way that we view ourselves, even the way that we think about God is shaped often more by the ideologies at play that we don't even have definitions for than the scripture itself. And what we need to come back to in a time in which an ideology, for example, like relativism is, is the dominant way that people think about truth, which is there is no truth, there's no absolutes which is what's given way to the power of the personal narrative and is given rise to the victim culture, which is my reality. I am the truest thing in the universe and how I define reality is true for me. So don't tell me how I should think. Don't tell me who I am. Don't tell me what to be. I have that right. It's built upon a false understanding of liberty it's built upon a false understanding of the ground of being. But nonetheless, it is what is at play right now all around us. And many of us have a real hard time breaking free. All of us really are affected by this view. Is that our lives matter supremely in the room. Our uniqueness. And this is, I'll just give you, just, uh, this is a very powerful illustration the early church fathers were very wise in the language they chose to describe the Godhead itself. We believe in one God revealed in three what? Persons, not what? Individuals. A definition of individual versus person is really important. Individual is your uniqueness apart from others. Personhood is your uniqueness in relationship to others. Christians are built upon the concept of being persons, whole persons made in the image of God. But our personhood is determined and dictated by our relationship with one another. We are not called to be individuals, our uniqueness separated from each other. No, I discover the unique gifts that I have to contribute to the world around me by being in relationship, in community with, with others. And I, I think that this is really important because knowledge in the wrong direction, I love, if you guys have ever read Dag Hammarskjöld, he, he was a Swedish um, diplomat. He actually died in a plane crash. There was a book found after he died. He was a really devout Lutheran. Um, and uh, not Yeats, um, I can't remember which poet. Oh, Auden. Um, uh, did a translation um, of his book that was found in his study after he died. And it was basically a, a, a devotional um, that he wrote called Markings. It's really, really beautiful. And it's just like really, just really profound like wisdom into, into leadership, into faith and, and very poetic. Um, but this is one of, one of the statements from Markings. He says, your life is without foundation if in any matter you choose on your own behalf. As, a, as an international diplomat, Dag Hammersgold realized that his effectiveness as a leader was dependent upon a Christian ideal that decision-making should never be made based upon what he wants 
but what is best for those who he is called to serve. His family, his friends, his nation, his community, his church. All, he, he had an other-oriented ideology that led to a very healthy understanding of the limitations of life apart from others. It's, this is knowledge in the right direction. But notice what it says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the age, um, is blind to what real wisdom is, what truth is. Because the wisdom of the world, every time the world makes an advancement, this is something that C.S. Lewis writes about in The Abolition of Man. It's something that uh, Rene Girard writes about um, in his mimetic theory. It's something that Jacques Ellul and, and hundreds of other thinkers, um, and specifically within in the world of, of Christendom and, and the, great, the great minds that God has raised up to point people back to the gospel, again and again, is that the knowledge and the wisdom and the advancements of our current age always come at a great cost. That's why we as Christians should not be giving our loyalty to any political ideology. Our supreme loyalty is not to capitalism or socialism because every ideology has left a vast wake of destruction behind it because that is the nature of a world that is under the sway of evil and and because you and I are captive to this little problem that is actually a massive dilemma which is the whole reason that the good news is such good news because it's a problem that God entered into fully the problem of sin it is our separation from God from one another and even from ourselves that leads to wisdom applied apart from Christ means that no matter how brilliant the idea, it will not come without a serious underbelly that actually hurts others. And that's why Lewis said in The Abolition of Man that we can never trust any advancement because it takes a very long time for us to feel the impact of any technological advancement. That's why Jacques Ellul spent his entire career writing 50 books um, from the beginning of World War II until he died in, I think, in 1994. Um, it was this whole concept of this illusion that we live in when we give ourselves to, um, give ourselves to an allegiance to ideologies outside of our commitment to Jesus as Lord. It's not that we're not called to be good citizens. It's not that we're not called to be grateful for where we live. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about being anti-American. I'm just saying we are Jesus and his kingdom first people. That's all I'm saying. And I think that this is important for us to understand because here it says, for in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now here it is. Paul actually goes on to say in chapter 1, one of the key verses um, for me as a follower of Christ, and even the, it's the, at the essence of the book that I'm writing, which is, which is the centrality of the cross, for Paul says, listen, the Jews seek after signs, the Greeks seek after knowledge. Notice, that very much speaks to the world too. It's like, if, if you're not seeking knowledge, we're at least seeking escape. If we're not seeking, if we're not seeking wisdom, we're seeking something sensational just as long as we don't have to seek the truth. And, and it says, the Jews are seeking after signs, the Greeks are seeking after knowledge, but we preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness to those that seek knowledge and a stumbling block to those that are seeking after signs. And I think that that sadly actually speaks even to the, the great chasm within Protestantism today. I think that you can see these extremes played out because when one seeks solely after signs, it leads to pride and experience, which I think we can see in the more extreme versions of, of our charismatic brothers and sisters. And when we seek after knowledge only, we, it leads to pride in knowledge, in wisdom. Uh, which, I, which sadly I've seen in the more extreme sides of reformed or fundamental thinking. Which, and neither of those are right. The cross 
actually is the thing that protects us from pride in experience or knowledge. It's the thing that humbles us again and again and actually opens up the door for both experience and knowledge. Knowledge in the right direction. I think what we have to understand, and this is one of the reasons that people have been walking away from their faith is we have so bought into the fundamental lie that you are the most important thing in the universe that we now live in, and Evan hates this word, and I'm just going to use it because you hate it, which is bespoke. Sabril, you like that word, right? You like that word bespoke? That's a cool, so hip. Do you even know what it is? If you don't, you're just not, you're not keeping up on what's trending. Um... Uh, bespoke is sort of like you made it yourself. You could just say you made it yourself. <laughs> it might even mean like made poorly. Um, uh, but, but I think it's actually appropriate to refer to the spiritual pursuits of this current age is not a a unwillingness to pursue spiritual things. In fact, I think our culture is unbelievably spiritual, really spiritual, but it's what I call a bespoke spirituality. um, uh, There's a book that I read recently that spoke of this, that if we have the right to curate our own Instagram or Facebook or whatever, why would we not be able to curate our own belief system, our, our system of worship? And and in this book, one of the things that was discussed was this, was this desire to have ritual, have meaning, have purpose, have community without any moral obligation or any authority over our lives. And I think that that actually speaks very much to even how we are as Christians, is that we like the idea of Jesus saving us. We do not like the idea of surrendering our rights, which is so sad because that kind of knowledge actually leads to an, an enslavement that is so brutal. Um, it, it, it's what has created uh, what, what psychiatrists and philosophers have called the anxiety of the age. It's the fear of non-being. It's the fear of, uh, it's the fear at, at the isolation and the loneliness that we feel in, the, in the, the unstoppable reality that death is coming for each of us. And we don't know what that means, really. Franz Wright in his book, The Silence of God, says, Who will teach me to die? Everyone I know is still alive. There is a fear that, that is consuming, and, and you see it played out in a time of a pandemic, the fear, the very real fear that was built into the, being confronted with the threat of non-being is a real thing. But the power of the gospel is the ability to rise from the ashes of a faith, like I said last week at the end, when we, when we fall out of the saddle as Christians. If, we're, if our identity is really a Christian, we'll get back in. Because we'll find ourselves like Peter. Lord, where else can I go? You alone hold the words of life. I think that this, this desire to create our own, um, our own spiritual experience is, is driven by what we see in, in, in this current age. My, my son um, and daughter, they, Henry's, Henry's 20 years old. He's the that first generation that has no memory of life without the smartphone. No memory of it. I mean, I remember when I met Darcy, we didn't have, we didn't even have cell, cell phones were anything. I had a pager. We need to bring that back. <laughs> I, I actually kind of preferred it. It was way less like, it was, it just, I just liked that it. it was just a number and it vibrated. Like I, getting, I don't like it when I'm preaching and I get text messages while I'm preaching. It's disturbing. Um, but I, I think of this, this, this whole age, this demographic that's come up, and you think about it, it's the cheerleaders of social media are consistently presenting to you. Um, they're, they're there to tell you the positive thinking movement that's all driven by, by helping you discover the God within you. It's, it is the mystery religion of old. And, and 
and it's driven by, and I'll just give you this, this one, besides relativism, the belief that truth is merely a social construct is existentialism. And if you don't understand existentialism, it's actually really important. Um, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, he's kind of like the, the key voice of the existential movement of the 20th century, and he wants to find it this way. He's like, he said, I am free. Um, he said, uh, if God exists, I am, I am not free. I am free, therefore God does not exist. Because existentialism is the belief that places supreme emphasis on the individual as a free agent to create and determine their own existence. Which obviously you connect that to the hedonism, the belief that pleasure is the key to real happiness, or humanism, the belief that emphasizes the individual placing human agency as the starting point for all serious inquiry. You put materialism, the belief that what it can be experienced with the senses is the only thing that is actually real. Man, it just layer upon layer upon layer, and all of a sudden we realize, are we coming at life from the lens of the gospel, or are we trying to interpret the gospel through these multiple lenses that are shaping us? Are we allowing the wisdom of the world to hide the presence of Jesus from us? I want to talk about three kinds of knowing. The first is knowing knowledge without knowing. 2 Timothy 3.5 says this, having the appearance, this is Paul talking to Timothy, and he said that, listen, in the last days, one of the most terrifying passages, we're going to consider it at the end of this message, it says, in the last days, people will be like this. This is what the spirit of the age will be. And it's going to give you a list of things. And, and the outcome of this age is that there will be teachers and voices that are constantly vying. And there are, listen, we all have multiple teachers. Our, the voices that are instructing you are many. And the likelihood that you're listening to voices that you're not even aware that you're listening to is also, uh, is probably, an, 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 you would have to live literally, and there, I'm sure there's some of you in here that are like very minimal in your usage of social media or, or whatever. You, you, you try to stay as unplugged as possible, and good for you, and you probably should. Uh, but the fact is, is that it's, it's hard for us to escape the, the noise in fact, Daniel, uh, Daniel Kaufman, who wrote um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, which if you want to get the best book on how much you should never trust your own brain, read that book. Uh, that book unhinged me and all of, my, all of the arrogance that made me feel like I kind of, I know I have the right answer to this. That book undermined everything. It's like, because our brains are incredible at making us confident where we ought not to be confident. Um, but he wrote a new book called Noise. And it's like, how do we actually even work out the necessity of, of um, analytical thinking uh, in, in a culture that is so bent on keeping us disoriented with so much useless information? And it is... Uh, we live in an age of just useless information. I mean, it's, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge referred to it as like the age of the news, the newspaper. And he calls it like this drivel that's meant to never take you anywhere deep, only to create more fears, more anxieties, uh, more obsessive behavior um, that actually hurts the soul and robs us of what it means to be human and hides God from our experience. Uh, but here, 2 Timothy 3.5 having the appearance of godliness and denying its power, these voices, these teachers, avoid such people because they are always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. I've thought a lot about this because this sort of speaks to the problem of knowledge. Knowledge in the wrong direction is often knowledge that never... I'm a guy that loves ideation for the sake... I like ideas for the sake of ideas. And, and ideas for the sake of ideas, it, it's, I love, I love to think about theology, I love to talk about abstract ideas, but the thing I learned early on in the church, and, and it was the night that my wife challenged me, I was doing a series on the attributes of God, and I got lost in my studies and realized that I was out of my depth, and I got up to teach and realized that I actually didn't know what I believed about the thing I was about to teach, which is a really terrifying thing. And a guy like me just figures, 
out how to talk for 45 minutes about nothing. Um, only to walk off the stage knowing exactly what I just did and my wife saying, it was interesting. <laughs> and then she followed up, she goes, honey, I'm sorry. I just, this series just is not moving my heart. It's like, I mean, honest, she goes, I, I just don't care. And it, and it was like a message that I gave, it was a message I gave on, does God sit inside of time or outside of time, or is he the Lord of time? Super helpful for just how we go about <laughs> existence. And it's like, yes, it's probably the answer to all three of those questions. Uh, but, but the, you know, I'm like sitting here pondering the timelessness of God and what does that mean? And if he's actually in, if he's outside of time, then time isn't real. And then that, and I was freaking out and I'm like, all that really matters, like, do I actually love Jesus more today? And do I love, do I love the people around me more? And I think that this is a really interesting, always learning, but never able to arrive at knowledge. Knowledge from a biblical vision, a gospel vision of knowledge is never information. It's relational. It's the language that Jesus uses over and over again. Have you been with me so long and still you do not what? Know me. In the last days, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? They even did activity in his name, Matthew chapter 7. And he says, away from me, I never knew you. So the danger of knowledge without action is real, but action without knowledge is real as well, and both are problematic. Jews seek after science, the Greeks seek after knowledge, but we preach Christ and him crucified because it keeps us anchored in what knowledge is meant to do. Lead us into deeper relationship with God and with one another and ultimately and only then would it give us right understanding of ourselves. I know this because I have seen how easy, how dangerous it would be in writing a book where much of it is memoir and I'm having to plumb the trauma of my childhood and the intensity, my wife will attest to, I mean, it's, it's like doing therapy alone, um, how easy it would be to become lost in my own investigation of my own history, where, and I have moments, almost lost myself in it. Um, it's a dangerous thing. Knowledge is meant to be, to help us become persons, not individuals. And the knowledge that leads to a place where you never arrive at the knowledge of truth. Learning without ever arriving at a knowledge of the truth is deeply problematic because the chief desire for Christ is for us to know him. This is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17 verse 3, that they know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now here's the thing is that knowledge without knowing, a lot of people put an emphasis on knowing God. In fact, when I just did that teaching at Ecola, I gave that lesson I was sharing with you guys. I asked people, what is the chief goal of the Christian life? And everyone quoted the Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. And I believe that is an incomplete answer because Jesus himself said, what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first commandment. The second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. He never, scripture never says love yourself. I've had people tell me I have to love myself probably three times this week. It's interesting. Scripture never says that. Because scripture assumes by the very nature that you are alive, even if you think you hate yourself, there is a natural instinct to preserve self. And so Jesus like, if you can love others the way that you love yourself, and this is that do unto others what you would have them do unto you, is, that, is, is speaking of the ideal. How do you want to be treated? How do you want to be known? How do you want to be loved? That is how you should live toward others. And if you did that, it, it would actually be the evidence that you love God. So a lot of people say, put all the emphasis on loving God, but they don't actually love people. And I find this really problematic when I see it in, in Christian leaders, where their love for God far surpasses their concern for their own family, for the people in front of them. You know, they study and pray. They're about knowing God, loving God. When I heard that A.W. Tozer's wife said, 
you know, of her, the husband that she married after Tozer died, that her new husband loved her, but Aiden loved God. And she said that as a, as a slam on the fact that he was not a great husband, essentially. It was so crushing for me because of the influence of his writing upon my life. But when you read his writing, you start to see that lens where the, the supreme emphasis does seem to be on an intimate knowledge of God. But, but often, it, it doesn't, he doesn't speak as, as often to the mirror of that knowledge of God is always played out in our love and concern for others. I just wrote a song. It's the first time I've ever done this where I wrote a song... I thought it was for Darcy, and it is, but it, it, it could just as easily be a worship song. And it, and it literally plays both directions, and, and it's because it came out of this revelation that how I love Darcy and how I hurt Darcy is the same ways that I love and hurt God. That in the song, I'm apologizing for being in the same room, but not seeing her there. In the song, I ask for forgiveness for, for placing the importance upon my own thoughts, my own desires, my own hopes rather than hers. And I realize that that's all the same things that I have to, my relationship with others is a mirror of my relationship with God. That's knowledge in the right direction. And a knowledge in the wrong direction is to think that you can love God and not love others. <laughs> that is for sure wrong. Having an appearance of godliness, nothing appears godly like the study of God. But some of the most damaging, if not the most damaging, ideas that have impacted the church today have come out of academics around people that don't even know Jesus, but claim to be scholars of him. We need to understand, and I'm not an anti-intellectual by any means, but I expect our Christian academics to be practitioners, and so should you. And we should expect the same of our pastors. Pastors that do not have relationships with their communities, with people, and I can't know all of you, but I should be known by some of you. And I should be engaged and available and accessible. Um, and, and that yes, there are limitations to that reality, but all of us, need to know and be known. That's one of the key purposes of church. And when you have a pastor that isn't known by anyone and doesn't know anyone, no wonder people are leaving the church in droves. Because we're missing one of the key points of what it means to love God. A love of God will manifest in a love for others. So I don't know how much I can trust someone that says they love God and they don't love people. I don't care how smart they are, how godly, how orthodox their teaching may be. Something is going to be missing. And have you ever been in a church that is dead right in what it proclaims, but it's dead? I have. I've also been in churches that feel alive, that aren't orthodox. And that's a different kind of scary, because that's called, which we're going to consider, right knowledge is also the ability to test the spirits. Um, which we'll get to in just a second. Knowledge without knowing is this. Knowing a bunch about the Bible and about God and about the world is nothing if it doesn't lead us to intimate knowledge with Jesus. If we begin there, has God revealed himself to you? Has Jesus been lifted up and you have responded by faith and said, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Listen, we're all gonna experience doubt. Doubt is an, is an unavoidable reality. And you may not doubt the existence of God, but you may doubt God's ability to love you. That's where I struggle. I don't ever, I'm not one of those people that struggles with doubt around the existence of God, but I definitely struggle with doubt around the idea that he loves me or that I'm really forgiven, which is why I preach that every week. We often preach what we ourselves need. My repetition there is because that's the thing I need to remind myself again and again. Knowledge that is intimate, a knowledge of God should lead to a knowledge of others and then and only then a knowledge of self. But knowledge without knowing is, is a dead end and it's frustrating and there's no end to it. Always learning, notice that, always learning, but never, it's like playing an endless game of labyrinth or something. Um, knowledge without love is the obvious outcome of that. And as I just began to hit on that, 1 Corinthians 8 verses one through three, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge 
puffs up. One of the things that Paul was addressing in the Corinthian church was, an, was, a, was a pride in spiritual experiences, um, a pride in their, in their understanding of the mysterious or deep things of God, but somehow they lost God in the midst of that. It's, it's the thing that Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, like, you know, you're doing all these things right, but I have this one thing against you. You've, you forgot your first love. You forgot what it means to love me. He says, remember what it was like to fall in love with me, repent and repeat. Um, and I think that this is, this is something we need to understand. Knowledge without love is dangerous because this kind of love, this kind of knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I have seen firsthand the outcome of, of spiritual arrogance. Um, and it, I get asked to go speak occasionally at like Bible colleges. really funny because I didn't go to school. But I often, I like to start with, I, I often will test seminary, seminary students. I'll say, uh, I'll say, hey, how many of you guys, uh, you know, utilize words like omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and all these hands. I just, I did this actually at this big conference down in, at the Calvary Chapel Bible College, and all these hands raised up. They were so excited that they used these big words. And I, um, and I said, don't do that. It's dumb. And they were just like, like just pull their hands down. And I was like, why is that so deeply satisfying just to do that? Just that I don't know why. It just shows that I don't love well. Um, but uh, but I, I think that this is that, that, that puffed up, like, why would you ever use any of those words in a conversation with a non-believer? Like, that's the craziest thing. I, we, I would never use that word with any of you in a conversation. Like, hey, we need to start with some with, uh, with, some, with some omnipotence. Let me uh, open, let me unpack that for you. Uh, you know, when, hey, we're, gonna, we're gonna begin with the hypostatic union. Like, don't say that. That just sounds like a good metal band. Um, so, <laughs> like, I think that this is, this is the issue, is that relational knowledge, I, I always was struck by this one. I had a really dear friend that's a missionary, still a missionary in Russia, um, and he's smart. Like, he taught himself how to speak Russian fluently, he married this amazing Russian translator, and she helped him a lot, but the thing she had him do to learn Russian was he read War and Peace in Russian to learn Russian. That's weird, because most people can't even read War and Peace in English, so uh, it's really long. But I remember asking him one of those questions, like, I'm like, Scott, what do you think around, I'm just, I'm really, I've been reading Calvin's Institutes. I was a new believer and I'm like, I think I'm a Calvinist. Like, I just, I just wanted something to make me sound smart and to feel like I was getting it. And it's very appealing to young, young men, this, this, this realm of pursuit of knowledge. And I don't know why there is something about guys really falling into this trapping. Um, and I think it is that, it's like the lack of empathy and the desire to just know. Um, and, and I said, I'm like, I'm really struggling with the concept of, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how do these things harmonize? And I'm like, I'm posing all these questions. And he literally looked at me and he was wearing a t-shirt. He was wearing a t-shirt, which I always found really embarrassing in Seattle because I was a brand new believer that just said, I really, really, really love Jesus. That was what his t-shirt said, which I'm like, you have to wear that. We're going to go to dinner. It's like so weird. <laughs> and um, I could, now I kind of, I think it's pretty rad that that's what he was wearing. But he goes, and he goes, and he literally looked at me in that t-shirt and he goes, I don't know, man. I just, I just want to love Jesus. And uh, he's a practitioner. He wasn't saying, I don't care about understanding. He was saying that if understanding doesn't lead to right affections, it's problematic. If it, doesn't, if it doesn't protect right affections, it's problematic. There's lots of things I learned that I disagree with vehemently. I only, for me, everything I take in, information, whether it's film, television, music, it drives my wife crazy, everything for me, I almost do nothing for just the sake of the thing. I don't, I, I love to read literature, but I don't actually read to escape. I, I always, I underline every book that I read. I'm always wanting to know how it can serve the main thing, the central thing, the gospel. But I also know the danger and how quick it is for me to fall into the trappings of knowing becomes the supreme goal rather than loving. I know how easy it is to get sucked into my pursuit of knowledge and, that in, and even the insecurities that I have to wrestle with because of my lack of formal education where there's this deep desire when you grow up with abandonment and broken childhood 
It's like, you know, it's as Steve-O um, from, uh, from uh, Jackass was once asked in an interview, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say that without telling you what the show is. Uh, uh, he, he said, he was asked, you know, why he did all this crazy, stupid stuff. And if you guys don't know what that show is, they're like guys that just do insane things that always are putting their lives in danger. And you're like, why are you doing, why would you crawl across a room in your underwear across mousetraps? That's weird. Um, and he said, I was so ignored by my parents as a child that it turned me into an attention whore. And I was like, oh, I don't like how much that resonates with me. Um, and it's like, it's a terrifying thing. And the only way to protect yourself against your own broken history is to continually ask the question, is what I am learning, is where I am growing, is it leading to greater ability to love God and love others? Is it creating an even greater gentleness with others? Because when I first became a Christian, I was hard on others and easy on myself. I'm learning to be much harder on myself and easy on others. And I think that that's a key to, to knowledge in the right direction. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know it. <laughs> Take that in. I mean, he doesn't qualify that statement. If anyone imagines that he knows something, that could be literally anything. <laughs> um, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but anyone, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Notice he doesn't say he knows God perfectly. In fact, Paul would go on to say, I know dimly, but I will know completely. But a love of God is the guarantee that we are known by God. And the love of God is the safety net against us believing that we know things that we just simply don't know. And we are really good at pretending to know things that we don't know, aren't we? Everything in life is so much more complex, so much more nuanced than we understand. We are so quick to judge people. We are quick to judge people. I was, in my book, I was writing this section actually on Jeffrey Dahmer. And, and it, was, it was interesting because it immediately, I, I was reading the section to a pastor, and I said, I want to know if you think that this goes too far. I began to read it, and he goes, the moment you mentioned his name, I went, you went too far. And he goes, until I heard the rest of it. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's a really profound thing. But here's the thing. Jeffrey Dahmer, in case you guys didn't know, he killed 26 young men, cannibalized them, cannibalized them. And he was caught. When he got into prison, he actually, first thing that happened was that he was, he said he experienced for the first time a relief because he knew he would never be able to stop what he was doing. That there was something else controlling and empowering. I mean, it's demonic. He actually begged for the severest judgment. He asked for the death sentence. He felt that's what he should get. Ted Bundy did not ask for the death sentence. He was a consummate showman who tried to get out of, out of the electric chair all the way up till the day before. Dahmer had a full-blown, from all apparent evidences, is that he had a legitimate repentance and a real conversion in prison. He went to, he, there was a pastor that was a chaplain at the prison that led him to the Lord. The only thing he asked for was a Bible. He went, to, he went and served in the chapel. He prayed every day. He read the Bible every day. He gave a really famous interview, talked very openly about what he did, talked about even the demonic power that was influencing the things that he did. No justification, complete humility. If anything, he, he underestimated Jesus's grace in the, in the belief that he did not think that he should be allowed to live. He believed he was saved, but he sh did not believe he should be allowed to live. He was ultimately killed by a prisoner who was in there for murder, who was praised by the public and praised himself because he rid the world of such a monster. And the irony of the story is that here is a killer who viewed himself as at least I'm not as bad of a killer as that guy. And I think that this is one of those ways in which, I, and I, I thought about this, this knowledge without love. I went on a forum. I just was curious, because if you type in 
Jeffrey Dahmer's conversion, it pulls up endless forums of Christians debating whether or not this guy was saved. And they just love talking about it. And man, one, one guy, I almost, I'm like, oh, this is how you get sucked into these things, huh? <laughs> I was just about to like, like, hey, that's too far. And I'm like, no, 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 like, like that's, a, that is a, that's a black hole that I am not willing to enter into. I watched many of you guys do it during the political wars and was not, it was not your best look, let me just tell you. <laughs> so I, I, I was like, I'm not getting into this, but this guy's like, he's like, you will know them by their fruit. He was a wicked man. There is no murder in the kingdom of heaven. He is in hell without question. I mean, just like, whoa, like this guy's got some inside knowledge. And, and I wanted to say like, how could you say that? How would you know? You clearly don't understand the gospel. And, and this is the thing is that yes, maybe next to Jeffrey Dahmer from a world's vision, the distance between that man and Dahmer was massive, just like the distance between any of us and Hitler. But next to Jesus, the distance between me and Hitler or me and Dahmer is non-existent because sin is not a measurement of how good you are. It is a measurement of how bad, or excuse me, not a measurement of how bad you are. It's a measurement of how good you are not. And I think that this is the thing, the whole purpose of the cross, the scandal of the cross is it's a place where monsters discover they're loved. That's the scandal of the cross. And knowledge in the right direction leads us to that conclusion. And if the knowledge that you have of God leads you to a place where you become convinced that on behalf of God, you are able to determine who's going to hell and who's going to heaven, I'm telling you right now, you do not know Jesus. I will be as dogmatic as you're willing to be dogmatic about the belief that you could actually determine such a thing. I wouldn't say that you're not saved, but I would say your understanding of God is deeply problematic if you believe that you can determine such a thing. And someone say, yes, what about Jesus' own words? You will know them by their fruit. Yes, that's true. But what do you do then with the thief on the cross? Because the only fruit that we have of his life is his simple remember me. It wasn't even Jesus' Lord. It wasn't his, I put my faith in you, Jesus. I repent of my sins. It was just, Jesus, remember me. I recognize I'm getting what I deserve. That's what he said to the other thief who was mocking Jesus, railing against him. And, G and Jesus said nothing to him. But this guy says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The only fruit that that man had was the simple yes to Jesus's amen. The acceptance of Jesus's yes. That's the only fruit. A simple request did he understand what Jesus was doing for him? Did he understand atonement? Did he have a orthodox vision of, of faith? Could we call him, you know, could we call him a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a, I mean, we have no idea. All we know is that this guy's next to Jesus and he has this dim perception that for whatever reason, this guy dying next to him was the only hope for him in the world. And he tossed out the simple request and Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. I do not call that a robust understanding of the gospel. And I would argue that that messes with a lot of your guys' grids. And I want to just say that this is knowledge in the right direction. Part of knowledge in the right direction is understanding that we don't know as much as we think we know. And it's the humility before the truth of who Jesus is to say, listen, truth can be relative all it wants to be in a world that we live in. We follow Jesus who is the truth, which means that, yes, truth can be defined by someone. For us, it just happens to be Jesus only. That's what I would say. Instead of trying to argue that truth is absolute, which it is, I'm, I would say truth is truth wherever it is found, it doesn't actually matter to me. What I would say is that I agree that truth is defined by someone, just not me, it's defined by Jesus. I'm just willing to submit to his truth. I'm willing to submit myself to the one who spoke in the universe, left in existence. And someone's asked me before, and I've said it a million times, if I was to come to the end of my life and discover that Jesus was not the son of God, but the invention of other human beings, I would have to worship the people that invented him because he's that beautiful and that compelling. And I think that this is knowledge without love 
is one of the fundamental revealers that we have knowledge in the wrong direction. And then finally, knowledge without examination. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Again, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? The real examination of knowledge is, do you have the one who is the truth abiding within you? There is a difference between analysis and examination. Robert Murray McShane said it best, for every one look you take into your own heart, take 10 looks to Jesus. The world wants you to focus inward. And self-analysis paralyzes in ways that nothing else can. So often, one of the things that, that led me to that confession a couple weeks ago is that I came out of a season in which my wife came to me in tears and said, I cannot get to you. You're too deep in your head. You're impenetrable right now. The kids and I can't. We, you're in the house with us, but you're not here. And that was very much like me as a kid. In times of great stress, I would be the kid in the classroom where the teacher would be like, Josh, Joshua, Joshua, standing right in front of me, and I would be a million miles away. That, that losing oneself inside oneself is a dangerous thing. Examination is something that's beautiful. It's, a, it's the question, Jesus, show me that I am right with you. It's the, Lord, help me by your spirit illuminate what is hindering me from knowing you, from experiencing you. Jesus, show me that I'm loved. Have you ever asked Jesus to reveal his love for you to you? Do you think that's inappropriate? Do you think that's, that's some sort of self-absorbed question? Listen, if you don't know how loved you are, you will not know how to serve God and others. Because we love him only because he first loved us. So if you don't believe he loves you, you're not going to love him, nor are you going to love others the way that you ought to. It is an absolutely appropriate request and one that God loves to give to his kids. This is something, would I ever, if my, if my, my daughter or my son said, Daddy, do you, how much do you love me? Do you think I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you that. That's stupid. You shouldn't have to ask that. If you're having to ask that, you have problems. Would I do that to my kids? That's, <laughs> even if I think they should know, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be like, baby, I love you with all my heart. I love you so much. I can't even put it into words. I often say, I love my kids so much, I tell my son who's 20, I still wish I could figure out a way to just stick him inside my stomach and carry him around with me like a kangaroo. Um, like, I love my kids. I love my wife. I tell my wife, I would like to be a human backpack on her back all day long. And she says, you are. But, that, um, but, but in my mind, I'm not, and I want to be. <laughs> so, I, like... My love is something I, would, I want them to never have questions. If they were to question it all, I would want them to ask me. And if you question God's love for you, it just begins with that, Lord, will you reveal your love to me? Because I want to know you. I want knowledge in the right way. I don't want to just keep learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth. Because you shouldn't come here to just learn information. That's not what church is. It shouldn't be a classroom. It should be a place of worship. Which leads me to this close. The spirit of the age and the spirit of truth. 2 Timothy 3, 2, 4. So this is the knowledge of the world. And this is what it leads to. In the last days, men and women will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I, I look at that list, guys, and it is disturbing how many of those things still resonate with me as a man who loves God, loves Christ, because we are a mixture. And it's important for us to understand that the spirit of all of these philosophies at play in the last days create this. This is what they create. It's the things that make movies good. Sadly, because Galatians 5:22 through 26 are the things that make movies bad, but it's what we need. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. That whole list is a guaranteed splat on Rotten Tomatoes. I know because my wife and daughter watch so many movies that fulfill that list, and they are so bad. All those little romance, rom-coms. Uh, it's true. It's like we, our culture has no taste for the fruit of the Spirit. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You guys, part of knowledge in the right direction is the ability to test the spirits, to examine ourselves and to test the spirits at play. And what we have to ask as a community is, what are we looking like? When you think about your money, what do you give to God with what you have? Maybe some of you never even heard that concept. Just so you know, when I became a Christian, I didn't even know that was something you do. And so I didn't give anything for two years, and my wife would have left me because she wasn't a believer. So... And that's probably one of the reasons I never talked about giving. But giving is actually an act of worship. It's one of the ways that we show that what we have, possession-wise, is not the thing that is controlling our existence. So we give to God in His kingdom, in His purposes, as a way of showing that this thing will not control me. When, when, we, when we think about pride, it's like, am I elevated? Is it, am I concerned mainly with what people think of me around me, or am I humble enough to see that there are people behind me, next to me, in front of me? When I think about the abusive, like, we're like, I'm not abusive, and abusive can be something that is a complex word, that is not just someone that beats another person, or even says cruel things. Abusive can be just a person that is literally emotionally unavailable all the time because they're so busy being focused upon themselves. Disobedient to their parents. Well, geez, I don't even have to talk about that. And you're like, but my parents weren't good. Honor your mother and father, no contingency. Ungrateful. Lewis said that the greatest issue in the church is that we live without thankfulness. In fact, the condemnation in Romans 1, he said this, becoming, they became darkened in their thoughts Foolish in their thoughts, ungrateful, leading to this place where they fully suppress the truth. A lack of thanksgiving is a sign of a suppression of the truth of who Jesus is. Unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. The greatest damage done in the church is done by Christians tearing each other apart. I know. I've seen the ways that I have in my own passive, aggressive ways slandered another. And I had gotten in trouble for it in churches I worked at before. And that is not a fun thing. We often learn humility through the school of humiliation. I know what it's like to be slandered because you cannot be a lead pastor of a church anywhere and not experience the, the sharpness of the tongue. The Without self-control, nothing gets me in trouble like impulsiveness. I look at this list and I'm like, dang it, Lord. But then I look at the, the lower list and I'm like, but that's there because I have the Spirit. And the question that I'm trying to learn is, Lord, how do I in practice, not just in mind, but in practice allow the Spirit to be the dominant controlling source of my life? And I, like you, I haven't figured that out, but I know that I'm going to do it best together with you and not alone. And I know that we as a community have to have the courage to push into Jesus and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Without you, I'm lost. We want to know Jesus. That should be the deepest desire of the church. And we recognize that the, the fruit of knowing him is our ability to know one another and to love one another well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. Lord, as we prepare to even go into a family meeting and talk about the future of Door of Hope and what you have been teaching us and allowing space for us to ask questions, um, I just pray that your spirit would be ruling in our lives. Lord, we need you. And I just thank you for those 
in this room that I get to live life with and who love me and have said hard words to me and have held me accountable. And I just pray that for each person here, that there would not be anyone here that just comes in unknown, disconnected, that we would take risks because knowledge in the right direction is, is a relational knowledge that brings us into the full personhood of what you have for us. But it's not without risk. And we will be hurt. You said in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And so we look to you. Holy Spirit, we ask you would in this time fill us with wonder and point us to the living Christ. Jesus, you are Lord, and we give our lives to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.